The talk is about mindfulness and metta. Some of you might have heard Stephen and I talking about some land on the big island of Hawaii that we've been in the process of purchasing to build a meditation center. And when we first uh, found this place over three years ago, I felt uh, pulled in by the land to protect it. You know, it was like the land found us. And this was such a powerful experience of being pulled in uh, rather than in um, discovering uh, that in the process of exploring this land, we found that there are a lot of what we would call uh, sacred land there. Uh, And it really brought up the question for me, well, what is sacred land? There are many heiaus along the coastline where this land is. There are two streams that go down into the ocean, and the land borders the ocean. And the ancient Hawaiians built uh, these temples. They're called temples, heiaus, along the cliffs uh, in this area. So there are eight heiau right adjacent to our land. There There were two heiaus on our land, when the land was planted for sugarcane, these heiaus were bulldozed into the ocean. In meeting with this uh, native Hawaiian woman who considers herself the guardian of these heiaus, she said that the stones don't make a heiau sacred. It's like uh, the stones can't make a place sacred that it's the actual place itself that's sacred. So the Hawaiians mark these places with stones to mark that these are sacred places, but that they don't need the stones to particularly uh, prove anything. They're sacred in and of themselves. And one can feel the power of this land, the sacred power called mana in Hawaiian, when one is there. Uh, this woman <coughs> who is guardian of the heiau, she speaks with the stones. And I feel like she's been teaching me about listening to stones and being able to speak with them. And her son is even better at it, at hearing what they have to say and speaking with them. This isn't something that we got, get a lot of feedback from our culture for. I mean, positive (laughs) feedback for... uh, (laughs) In fact, according to our law, uh, a place isn't sacred unless there's a building on it. That's what our Supreme Court says. So as we start to take the time to listen, you know, the, the practice, the meditation practice is teaching us to slow down. Uh, to be in solitude, to be willing to be in silence. If we do this, it's inevitable that we'd be touched by the universe in some way. We'll be able to receive. So in spring, uh, one of my favorite birds is the wood thrush. 
Uh, and there's an inexplicable sweetness to its song. Uh, and it's so uh, moving to me. Just like the delicate pink of the lady slippers in the woods, if you've seen those, there's just something inexplicable um, the way it touches us. But we know we're touched and we feel connected uh, to this life, to ourselves, and to nature. The experience of loving kindness is this ability to listen, to be touched in some inexplicable way, and to know deeply, not through the thought process, uh, but in an intuitive way, we understand experientially the truth of interconnectedness, that we're not alienated, hollow, separate beings. I came upon this quotation from Mother Teresa recently. She was asked by an interviewer what she says to God when she prays. And she said, I don't say anything, I just listen. So the interviewer asked her what God says to her. He doesn't say anything, said Mother Teresa, he just listens. <laughs> <laughs> She added, she added to the interviewer, and if you don't understand that, I can't explain it to you. <laughs> I think we all understand that sense of pure listening. Uh, and when the hindrances are at bay, when the energy, the concentration, or the metta-mindfulness, if they're there, and sleepiness, restlessness, doubt, anger, attachment aren't present, we deepen our understanding of interconnectedness there. With whichever practice we do, uh, we call this, uh, like I said the other night, good practice. There's a purity there. It's usually why we come to retreat. It's something we can get very attached to. As Stephen was saying in his talk last night, there's a way that we can start to understand how that listening happens, where we understand about aiming the attention. I think of that also as receiving, just listening, and sustaining that attention, connecting that attention with our experience. In the metta practice, that means we understand the meaning of the phrases. Uh, another way to say that is we actually receive the understanding of the phrases we're saying, and then we connect that with ourselves or another. So we get that sense of listening, receiving, connecting, which leads to that joy of interconnectedness. That understanding that we're not separate is what gives life meaning. Metta, or loving-kindness, is a lifeline for us. When we start with the benefactor, or dear friend, the Buddha said that there are two types of rare and precious beings in this world, one who shows kindness, and one who appreciates that kindness. Two rare and precious types of beings. So simple, one who is kind, 
one who receives that kindness and appreciates it. So if we start to understand the meaning of love and kindness, that it's a lifeline into our hearts, and that the benefactor is meant to be uh, a connection that helps us sustain that lifeline into our heart, then we understand that the metta, the benefactor, is a lifeline into meaning and truth and awakening. One of my benefactors visited me yesterday. Uh, She um, moved into my neighborhood when I was six. 1956, (laughs) something like that. A long time ago, it seems. And she moved into the neighborhood as a young housewife with three children. I connected with her because she didn't pretend that being a housewife uh, at that time on the planet was such a totally okay thing to be doing. You know, she didn't pretend that it was all great. Uh, sometimes I would come into her house and she used to try to read the good housekeeping magazines and think that that was enough. And she'd have them piled up sometimes when I came in and she'd say, oh, these give me a headache. I just, I just can't keep up, you know. She, couldn't, she just couldn't pull off what she was conditioned to try to pull off. And I loved her honesty. It's like her honesty was a lifeline into my own. When my mother died when I was 13, uh, in those days, talking about death, especially in this neighborhood, was not something you did. But she gave me the book Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. And it was such an important gift. It's like that's why I consider her my benefactor. You know, she gave me a lifeline to try to understand mortality, and and someone that, you know, one's mother is sort of the crux of that dilemma. (laughs) You know, what is separation? What is life? What is death? Ultimately, you know, it was the conversation with her, just any conversation that was really healing. And yesterday she came and she was reaching out to me. Her father just died. And so she came to see Steve and I, and Steve shared his stories of when his father died a few years ago uh, and how he touched his dad's skin and touched his feet. And she said, you know, I've never touched my father since I was a little girl. And I touched his, it just kept touching his skin like, how important it was for her to just touch his skin. How simple and so important. So I gave her a silk handkerchief for her tears. And I really felt the power of changing categories. You know, just feeling how over the years, sometimes she's my benefactor and I'm her benefactor and how that doesn't always fit the models, uh, but it feels right. You know, we do that for each other, whether it's a dear friend or benefactor or friend.
I mean, sometimes we really switch categories. Sometimes <laughs> uh, when Upandita says, distance makes the heart grow fonder, you know, the reason why one doesn't always use the closest people to oneself as benefactor uh, is because often the people we're close to go from dear friend to difficult person in one second. You know, <laughs> it's incredible. You know, they just keep switching. <laughs> I love you, I hate you. <laughs> and in some ways, you know, our, the closest people teach us really how to hate and really how to love and uh, how to let go on a deep level. In some ways, that rare and precious human being, one who shows kindness, it's really one who takes the time to take an interest in us. You, know, you can see how, again, it takes, it takes that time of just slowing down, listening, receiving where somebody is, and then reaching out. In fact, it's said that if you're in the hell realms, of existence, or you know when you're a human and you hit these places that we'd call so difficult that they're a hell realm, it's only metta that does pull us out. You know, it's that quality of reaching out and touching <coughs> or being touched by some being uh, that heals the heart. I find um, that it doesn't really matter so much what that connection is, but it is the connecting that matters. I went to see my father and stepmother just before I came to this course, and they're in their mid-80s, and they're home a lot. You know, they don't go out much, they're quite isolated. They don't have much company. Um, and their way of reaching out is to feed the chipmunks outside their house. And they give them a lot of peanuts. It's like, and I keep wondering if underneath the house, you know, <laughs> at some point the house is just going to fall in, you know, because where are they putting them? They can't possibly be eating all these peanuts. You know, it's like day after day, year after year. And, uh, and they're so fat, you know. They're <laughs> And <laughs> they've started feeding the birds, too, which I think is good for the chipmunks <laughs> because, you know, they're, they're you know, but they must be, you know, sometimes I think maybe underneath the whole neighborhood there's peanuts everywhere, you know, uh, and it's bringing them both so much joy. I read a book recently uh, by a woman named Julia Butterf Butterfly Hill. I don't know if you've heard of her, but she spent two years in a tree called Luna uh, to protest the clear-cutting of the redwoods. And it's, it's like she's written a book about what started for her as tree-sitting. There are many uh, human beings who were protesting clear-cutting, and they were risking their lives for these trees and for all of us. Uh, to sit way up in these trees. It just so happened that she sat in one for two years. 
which is extraordinary. Her feet never touched the ground for two years. But also, she was 180 feet up in this tree, you know, through El Nino and El Nina. Uh, what, what's to m- most interesting to me through the book is that when people would um, come to the bottom of the tree and say something like, um, okay, we got your point. You know, we got your point. <laughs> you know, come down. Uh, but it, she, wouldn't, she wouldn't give in. It's like until that particular tree was saved, uh, she wouldn't come down. Uh, so she finally did come down when she protected the tree. But this tree clearly became a benefactor for her. And when she had to come down, she wrote, I feel like I'm being separated from a part of myself, a piece of me. The essence of who I am. The woman I have become is being torn apart right now. I am beginning to feel the understanding, the never-ending lesson of letting go. When I leave this tree, I will be leaving the best friend I've ever had. It's a pain I cannot describe, only feel and be with. I am with it now, and it is only the beginning. She was allowed to come back to the bottom of this tree by the lumber company, but she's never allowed to climb the tree again. I will do my best to live the rest of my life in honor of her, Luna, and this experience, offering myself as the only gift I have to give. It is my prayer and my hope that I will always and only be an offering. And she writes when she came down, how would I be able to keep the focus, grounding, and truth that I had found in this tree, Luna? How would I be able to keep going when it felt like I was dying, having to leave this incredible living being? You know, it's like, sometimes people will say to me, well, I can't find a benefactor. You know, but if you think about it, even if you go back to a place in your childhood, there probably is a tree, or a stone, or a cat, or a dog, or a chipmunk, some being that kept you going, or you wouldn't be in this hall. You know, you, it's just, we don't make it. It's, it's just too hard. And if you find that it gets too difficult during the retreat, Often, if you kind of just step back, especially on a day like today, uh, you know, the, just the blue sky can be a benefactor or a green leaf. Neighborhoods, old neighborhoods, can be interesting. I often ask uh, this friend that visited me yesterday how the old neighborhood (laughs) is and what's happening. And she often has a story that's meaningful for me. Uh, So she told me a story of this uh, family that I never spoke to and that she's never spoken to and lived several houses down from us. (coughs) 
And all I ever did ever, you know, till I left when I was 17, is wave. You know, whenever I went by, I waved. And she said, since 1956, ever since she's gone by them, all she's ever done is wave. She's never talked to them. I have people in my neighborhood now like this, in Honolulu. It's like, there's always that feeling in me, like, oh, I should go talk with them. But I don't. You know, they're there, but I don't. And she said that uh, suddenly they were gone the other day. They left. Uh, and then this bulldozer came, bulldozed the house, uh, and she was devastated. You know, she had no idea how much she was connected to them, you know, and how close she felt to them after all these years, but never talked with them. You know, we're so interconnected, and we don't remember it sometimes. We don't realize that just, I know these people down the street from me now. I know I hear them come and go. I hear their fights. I hear their joy. Um, I know them pretty well, but I've never talked with them. You know, we're so much closer and interconnected than we realize. Being on a metta retreat, I find, uh, opens me up. You know, it's like it opens the heart up to start remembering the places that we need to remember. When we're touched by loving-kindness, please be careful of having an idea of what the experience should be, or what our response should be. Sometimes the feeling will be spacious, or accepting, or we might have tears of joy or gratitude. We might have that sense of poignancy, or joy, or quiet happiness. Sometimes people will feel a feeling of grief, you know, that they haven't experienced that much of it in a lifetime. And then there'll be a feeling of knowing that happiness is okay. You know, that, and that we'll, I'll get a commitment to really wanting to develop more. When the loving kindness practice is going along, and we are protected from the hindrances, you know, when the concentration energy is there. This is the time that we can deepen the jhanic factors that Stephen was talking about last night. We can explore aspects of connection, of interconnectedness, of happiness, joy, that are really important for us, and very healing. But at some point, the energy will go down, the concentration will go down, you know, we'll lose it. And then what do we do? You know, at the least we might notice wanting it back, comparing aversion or attachment. The other night I described this process as a kind of purification, where we'll be going along and there'll be that purity and sometimes it might be that just the energy concentration goes down and boredom appears. But often aversion will appear because we resist the boredom. You know, so how do we work with the times <laughs> when the bottom falls out? You know, or, or at least we're resisting what's happening. 
And this is when we often need to shift to the mindfulness practice. Now, of course, you've heard us suggest, try to keep the metta going. The practice is one of, even when you start feeling like you're losing it, you, you reconnect with the feeling essence. You reconnect with the phrases. You know, there are many things you can do. You see, well, is, can the person be with me as I walk or sitting with me? Sometimes I would, I used to change the outfit of the benefactor I was using (laughs) 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 with every phrase. You know, it was fun. You know, it kept me interested. Uh, (laughs) You have to have a certain imagination for that. Um, I would even put them in different eras, like the the 20s or the 50s. You know, but that, that goes too. <laughs> you know, no matter what we can muster up for keeping ourselves interested, we'll finally go, and that dryness will come in, the mechanicalness will come in. Often as the energy starts to come down, the bad joke about practice is that usually aversion and attachment are on the rise. It's like we're getting to see a new layer of that emerge. That's the process. It's how it happens. If we take this personally, like somehow we did something wrong, or that it's our fault, uh, it's a bad day. You know, it's just, (laughs) it's so painful, you know, when we think that somehow we should be able to make the high energy last, and we should be able to make the concentration last. Yes, do the best you can. Shift to someone easier, someone easier. But then when you shift to mindfulness, You know, that's okay, too. So the loving-kindness practice is a purification, and it can lift many things because it'll help us to feel. You know, maybe we're just feeling numbness. You know, sometimes there were times in this practice where I felt like my heart was this fire that had just about gone out. You know, and I could find one ember and most of the day, I felt like I was walking around going, <laughs> you know, just, <laughs> you know, and sometimes I'd feel, oh, it's out, you know, <laughs> and wait for a few hours, and then, you know, it, it was, it's, it can be really hard sometimes. Um, In the process of going through the neediness, the loneliness, the anger, the irritation, whatever it is, the, the, um, wanting it to happen more quickly, you know, just the impatience with this process, the more we discover what loving-kindness isn't, because we'll see our own cruelty, we'll see our own impatience so much more clearly, uh, and then we'll finally get that sense of acceptance again and realize, oh yeah, that's what kindness is, that's what mindfulness is, you know, that it's just so important to see that we're learning no matter where we are. One aspect of mindfulness that can be helpful, and I'm not suggesting this as a checklist by any means, but I try to think of mindfulness as having different qualities. So the first is recognition. The second is acceptance. The third is interest. The fourth is non-identification. 
So say you shift to mindfulness practice, and I would suggest not necessarily, say there's anger happening. You don't have to dive right into it. You might just be with hearing a bit, or with the movement of the breath, and just get a sense of shifting, because it's not always easy to shift right out of metta practice to mindfulness practice. And it's remembering, oh yeah, it's receiving the sound. It's a non-doing rather than so much of the doing of the metta. And it's recognizing just simply that hearing is happening. Hearing, and then accepting if the sound is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. One sees if we can allow that. You know, there are many aspects, recognition, acceptance, interest. Interest means that we're interested in shifting from conceptual to non-conceptual. You know, so say we're listening in the hall and we hear a car go by. And we're aware, recognition, hearing, we allow the sound. Um, Maybe we have a thought, oh, that's a car. You know, now interest would be starting to understand that the vibration of hearing itself is not that thought, oh, that's a car. But you can't stop the concept about the sound from appearing. The thought will come, and then you shift back to the direct vibration of hearing itself. So this shifting, like I'm saying, is important because we're not doing that in the mind, you know, the metta practice. We're saying, may I be healthy, peaceful. I mean, shifting to this other way of being isn't so easy right away. So I suggest you do it with sound or the breath. Non-identification is knowing that it's not my sound, or your sound, or it's not personal. Non-identification is not believing the thoughts about the sound. Then you might try being with a movement of the breath, receiving it, letting it live itself out, letting it pass away. Again, it's that recognition, oh, breathing. It's simple, yeah. Acceptance, not controlling it. If it's deep, let it be deep. If it's shallow, letting it be shallow. If it's tight, you let it be tight. However it is, you let it come and go by itself. Non-identification is not taking it personally. And not getting lost in any thoughts about the breath. So say grief or anger has appeared in the metta practice. The general conditioning of us human beings is to resist it, to repress it, or to indulge it. You know, and so if we feel like the anger shouldn't appear, and that we're bad human beings because it's appeared, and that somehow if we would just work hard enough in our practice, anger shouldn't appear, It's really painful. If we have a sense of, oh, my old friend, anger, you know, maybe I can try learning how to experience this. The heart is opening. The heart is like an instrument that feels. You know, so we have an eye door, ear door, nose door, mouth, tongue. 
we don't think of getting rid of the I to be liberated, the I. We don't think of getting rid of the ear to be liberated. But somehow, when we think of the heart or mind, you know, the mind or heart door here, somehow we think we have to get rid of these difficult emotions to be liberated. You know, do we cut out this instrument, this incredibly sophisticated mind and heart? Or do we learn how to experience what arises in the human world, including emotion. So indulging an emotion is getting lost in the story about it over and over. And we all know what it's like to get lost in anger. You know, it, it can be great. You know, we just get right, we just get righter and righter and righter. <laughs> I had an experience this spring where a family, we, we have a lot of people wanting to see the land, and the land is on another island. And Stephen and I are also um, doing a lot of work to get this thing going. Uh, and this family visited when I was quite tired. And I know uh, this friend had wanted me to really, I think, assess their difficult child <laughs> and kind of give feedback about it. But I didn't know that was the motivation of the trip. Uh, so. I flew over, <laughs> I rented a, a, a vehicle that I knew that the children couldn't walk the land because it was so much land. So I rented this kind of four-wheel drive. Um, and immediately, the family couldn't wait to have me have the girl in this car because they just loved her not being with them. You know, she's, she's tough. You know, so, uh, but I didn't know this, so I learned very quickly, driving with her, <laughs> why I had her and they didn't. <laughs> And I was starting to suspect the motivation for their trip. Um, so it was a long day because, you know, I really realized that I was giving them a break <laughs> for the day. She's lovely, but um, does really have some trouble. So by the end of the night, I was tired because I started tired, um, and sh this girl needed a lot of attention. So we were driving out. Um, and of course, she wanted to drive with me to the last second. So we stopped at this place where they were going to go off to their hotel. And I had somewhere I was supposed to be. So I got out of the car, and she locked the keys in the car and got out. And it was like 10 o'clock at night, dark. I was tired. Um, and I really put all my practice into work be because I knew if I started to blame her, you know, the family would, you know, it was just a pattern of the family to just, she was the scapegoat. I mean, she was the wrong one. She was the identified patient. So I, all of my, I really wanted the pleasure of blaming her. Do you know that feeling? It's like, oh, I was just, I was really wanting to avoid the unpleasantness and the aversion. And I was just like, I, you know, I couldn't breathe out. <laughs> I just kept breathing in. <laughs> I just kept breathing in and breathing in and breathing in, because I knew if I breathed out, I would go, <laughs> So I managed to keep it together um, until she laughed, and they all laughed, and then <laughs> anyone I could talk to on the street, I was like, 
this person locked the keys in my car. <laughs> and it took a long time for AA, AAA to come get the car. Uh, but what was, there were two things that I found interesting, because one was really seeing in the past, I wouldn't have been able to control it. You know, I just would have had to do it. I would have needed that relief. I couldn't have stayed with the pain. Uh, and that was really encouraging in that situation. The conditions were ripe for blaming, to say the least. Uh, but I also saw more clearly how that movement toward blaming was, was two things. One was that it felt like it was going to be so pleasurable. You know, like I, I wanted that pleasure so much. And I didn't see before in the past how much it was avoiding just the unpleasantness of the situation. And so the mindfulness practice teaches us that life is just different moments of pleasure, unpleasant, neutral, and we can't always control it. In fact, a lot of the time we can't control it. And when it's unpleasant, we don't like it. Aversion. We push it away. And then when it's pleasant, we want to hold on to it. The Buddha taught that it was that pushing away, the holding on, is where we suffer. Now, we're not always directly confronting that in the metta practice. It's like we'll keep going with the metta, and it's almost like suddenly we'll be resisting something, and we're not always as clear what we're resisting, or suddenly we'll be holding on to something, but it's not always so clear. So what I'm trying to say is, please remember that if you shift, first try to get a sense of what mindfulness is. You know, be with the breath, be with sound a bit, and then try to shift if you know what it is. Recognition, oh, wanting, or oh, neediness, or oh, anger. And this is so important, because if you can recognize it, it's half the battle. Most of the time we don't know what we're resisting, and it's so painful. It's the resistance that's the suffering in our life. Metta is actually a form of acceptance, and mostly our intention in teaching loving-kindness is to really help us to start to understand what acceptance is, and that it's actually a part of mindfulness. A moment of mindfulness includes acceptance. It, it, you can't have resistance happening and mindfulness happening. You can have mindfulness of resistance. And a great form of metta and mindfulness is learning that resistance is actually happening a lot. Even if you could s consider how many moments were in the present moment, then you could guess that resistance is happening a fair deal. <laughs> you know, we're either wanting to be somewhere else or we don't want to be here. I mean, how much have you planned during this retreat? How much have you remembered <laughs> or fantasized? What is the, you know, the human, a great human feat is to be in the present moment and to start being willing to look at what's really happening versus what we want to be happening. I was saying in one of my groups today that 
on the Big Island of Hawaii, there's a volcano that's been running since 1986. When I first saw that liquid fire, I felt for the first time a kind of acceptance of anger uh, that I had never felt before. It was like seeing it so embodied physically. Uh, I felt that I could start to become more mindful of it within myself. Uh, so we teach, when you have a, any emotion arising, whether it's enthusiasm or over-exuberance or joy or anger or grief, sorrow, whatever it is, to ground the attention with your physical sensations. So you can recognize it as a mental state, and it's helpful to make a soft mental note, like grief or sadness or neediness or whatever. If you can do that, you're going to find a huge difference just making the soft mental note and then ground the attention with physical sensations, if you can. Now, if you don't feel any physical sensations, there's nothing wrong. Now, if you don't have anything coming up in this practice, there's nothing wrong. <laughs> you know, I'm describing these, but if you're having an even train ride here, enjoy it. <laughs> don't get off the train. You know, or think like something's wrong. I mean, all of our practices unfold differently. Uh, so please don't think I'm saying you should be mucking around in anger. You know, if you're not, that's fine. But often, for most of us, <laughs> when we're doing these practices, at the least, boredom will come up. And then aversion to the boredom will come up. So it's applicable for everyone. Or sleepiness might come up, and then aversion to the sleepiness. Or attachment to the concentration. However it happens, uh, unless you're fully enlightened, you're going to be having some trouble here. So grounding the attention with physical sensations, even if it's with the breath or the body, noting the, mental, noting the experience as a soft mental note, fear, fear, grounding the attention, and then really being careful of getting lost in the storyline. So ultimately it's not my anger, it's just anger or simply anger coming and going by itself. The mindfulness practice teaches us that we can relate to anger like you could the movement of the breath, or we can learn to relate to anger appearing and disappearing like we could the sound of a bird disappearing. So you're not trying to get rid of anything. You're not trying to get rid of uh, sadness or fear or happiness or joy. That's really important. You're not trying to control anything. You just learn to experience it. And it's the same words, aiming, sustaining, you know, receiving the experience. There is something quite joyful about learning how to experience something like fear or neediness, you know, that can be painful for us and know that we can be peaceful and happy human beings while being human. You know, we can be free even when these experiences are happening. 
Because you know, if you think you have to get rid of all this stuff to be free, that's aversion. And that's not freedom. Sometimes the heart will just feel closed or tight. And can that be okay? You know, or numb? When I was um, talking with my sister last week and she was going through some really hard times with the chemotherapy, for a few days I couldn't feel my heart. You know, and I kept (laughs) going, knock, knock. Who's there? You know, it's just like I couldn't find it. It it was like, and I finally realized after a few days, it just was, didn't want to feel that anymore. You know, just the grief. It was, and I felt like the earth was holding it for me. You know, and then it finally kind of came back. And it was like, oh yeah, I was taking a rest. Uh, But I didn't know it for a few days. It was just like, what? What is this? I just can't feel it. In the past, before this practice, I would have thought something was really wrong with me or, you know, that I should be able to feel or I would make it into some problem and feel like I was no good. You know, and you know the downward spiral you go from that. It's just until you just bottom out and you feel like you're unlovable, no good, a failure. You know, and I would get a whip out and I'd just whip myself and whip myself and whip myself. The metta practice healed that. <laughs> you know, I can literally tell you that I've put down the whip. And it's all seeing how we make an interpretation about ourselves from anything. You know, you can, you can hit bottom from the experience of boredom. In fact, I used to do it a lot. <laughs> I'd be outside doing walking meditation thinking, you know, I could just, go deeper, you know, I, I can really make this practice go deeper. So I just put in all this effort, instead of kind of lightening up, I think if I just bear down, you know, the boredom's going to go away. Um, and that was all motivated from aversion. And then when it didn't work, I'd feel like, oh, I can't do this, you know, and down, 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 pick up the whip, blip, blip, blip. And then, you know, then that's pretty tiring, yeah? You know, <laughs> got to go take a nap, wake up, boy, I really can't do this practice, you know, <laughs> down, down, down. You know, it's just, it's a never-ending bottoming out. I mean, sometimes bottoming out is good because finally there's nowhere else to go. You know, you'll hit, you'll start bouncing back. But I would say that um, it's possible to do it without the whip. In fact, I'm sure of it. This is uh, from a book called The Prayer Tree by Michael Lunig. He said, when the heart is cut or cracked or broken, do not clutch it. Let the wound lie open. 
Let the wind from the good old sea blow in to bathe the wound with salt and let it sting. Let a stray dog lick it. Let a bird lean in the hole and sing a simple song like a tiny bell and let it ring. Let it go, let it out, let it all unravel. Let it free and it can be a path on which to travel. When we say, may we be happy and peaceful of heart, we have to remember that that doesn't mean that we're getting rid of anything to be happy and peaceful of heart. So may we be happy just as we are. May we be peaceful with whatever is happening. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.